0: The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised.
1: Previously on Stranglers.
2: The first of the Boston Stranglers murders was Anna Schlessers.
3: Mrs. Schlessers, a retired seamstress, had been strangled manually. Then the belt from her housecoat had been twisted about her neck.
2: Her name was Edith Erga, and she
4: was my grandmother.
2: Why is anyone going around murdering these elderly women? My dearest Chuck, may this letter find the man I love well.
3: That type of change in victim, not only in race, but in age, would tell me we're not dealing with the same guy. Patricia Jane Bissett.
5: I remember detecting the slightest bit of a tremble in his hands.
6: He said, son, I had the strangler. It's
3: sort of heartbreaking at times. We get our foot in the door, so to speak, and the bottom falls out
7: of our hot lead. He went to the courthouse and found
4: Salvo had been released a year early.
8: I told her I up there to be some work in the apartment.
4: Bottomley's conduct of the interrogation of DeSalvo was very atypical.
0: I want to show the guy's insane. That's my defense. I mean, even
8: our word testimony comes from the etymological root for testicles. Another
3: madman is on the loose, this time in Ypsilanti, Michigan.
7: The night before De Silva was murdered, he made a phone call. But I said, Mom, at least they got the guy. And she looked up at me and she said, no, Casey, I don't believe they ever did. It was a bright
2: fall day and the sun was shining. And there we were um, exhuming her to re-autopsy her.
1: From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick.
2: Guys, everybody ready? This is New England. New England, New
4: England, New England. England.
2: And we're afraid, you know, we might be the next one. It's the unknown... That we fear. How the mighty have fallen.
4: (laughs) I think you're gonna like this picture.
1: Episode 12: Memorial. We pray to thee, our God, this day. January 11th, 1964 would have been Mary Sullivan's 20th birthday. Instead, that day, her family gathered at St. Francis Xavier Cemetery on Cape Cod. They felt overwhelmed with grief and rage at the senselessness of her murder. Thirty-five years later, Mary's family exhumed her remains. After the forensic samples had been gathered and sent off to the lab, it was time to lay Mary to rest again.
2: It was a very um, beautiful day and she was actually laid in a brand new uh, casket and she was covered in new white linen and um, she had a uh, you know a photograph and her rosary back on her
1: family lawyer elaine sharp
2: her sister diane dodd was able to have a few minutes with the remains um, before she was reburied it was a very solemn occasion and You know, there were prayers, and flowers, and it was a full funeral.
1: The Sullivan family went back to work on Mary's case. In three months, they got DNA results that supported their belief that Albert DeSalvo had not killed Mary. But the Boston Police Department dismissed those test results because the chain of custody was broken, and DNA could have been accidentally introduced or wiped away any number of times. Casey Sherman wrote a book about Mary's death and his attempts to find her killer. The book did well, and he went on to write others. More than a decade would go by. Mary's case remained open and unsolved. And then, in 2013, the Boston Police Forensics Lab called up Bill Dugan, the head of the Cold Case Squad.
3: We had a blanket. And that blanket can be seen in the original crime scene photos um, on the bed with Mary Sullivan, uh, with Mary Sullivan's body.
1: Dugan had known about the blanket ever since he had joined the Cold Case Squad. It had been tested before and produced nothing helpful. But the lab told Dugan, we're ready to try again.
3: Even though those photos are from 1964, in the original crime scene photos, you can see staining on that blanket and that same staining that you can see in those original crime scene photos, that's what they tested.
1: The department now had more sensitive equipment, better than when Casey Sherman had launched his investigation.
7: Now, in the early 2000s, DNA technology had advanced to a certain degree, but it has leapfrogged in technology over the past five, six, seven years. The DNA uh, testing and the, uh, uh, the technology that is out there now can really pinpoint... I killed her much stronger than it could back
1: then. Casey Sherman's investigation had led the Attorney General's office to unearth some slides from Mary Sullivan's autopsy. The slides had samples of semen that had been on Mary's body at the crime scene. These slides had also been tested before without any conclusive results. In
3: 2013, however, the profile developed from the semen stains on the blanket. They were processed and they were found to be a match to the profile developed from the male profile in Mary Sullivan's mouth. That's the guy that raped and killed her. We had a potential suspect list, and based on his confession as well as the case files, he would be suspect number one. So he was the first one we checked.
1: He being Albert DeSalvo. Bill Dugan wanted to see if these samples would match DeSalvo's DNA. But the department could not locate any samples of DeSalvo's blood in its archives. So the police decided to improvise.
7: They followed Albert DeSalvo's nephew, Tim DeSalvo. Tim DeSalvo's a great guy, and he's uh, he probably never committed a crime in his entire life. But he was, he was stalked by detectives in the Boston Police Department, and I know there's some controversy about it.
1: The Boston PD followed Tim DeSalvo to and from his construction job.
3: We sent our fugitive unit out there. At one point, Albert DeSalvo's nephew was seen drinking from a water bottle. When they discarded the water bottle, uh, our fugitive unit collected it.
2: I think one has to ask oneself is it ethical for the government to trail an innocent man?
1: Lawyer Elaine Sharp.
2: And take his DNA. When he has no criminal record, no involvement in the, in the crime, he's not a suspect. And in face of the fact that we offered them the DNA voluntarily, that they followed him and they tailed him, is that ethical? Is that right?
3: They developed a DNA profile from the water bottle.
7: I was shocked when I got a call out of the blue, suggesting that I strongly suggesting that I go to the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office on a weekday morning in the middle of the summer in 2013.
4: Sir, Flora George, when you're ready. Today we announce a major development in the investigation into the homicide of 19-year-old Mary Sullivan almost 50 years ago. Advances in the sensitivity of DNA testing.
1: This is the news conference we heard in episode one. In which the authorities announced the results of their test. Tim DeSalvo's familial DNA matched the samples from the blanket with more than 99% reliability. But to be absolutely sure,
4: yesterday a Suffolk Superior Court judge authorized the exhumation of DeSalvo's remains for confirmatory testing that we expect will prove DeSalvo's guilt once and for all.
1: They dug up Albert DeSalvo. And yes, His DNA matched the sample, beyond a reasonable doubt.
3: The chance that it could be anybody else other than Albert DeSalvo was 1 in 220 billion. Detective Bill Dugan again. Keep in mind, the current population of the planet Earth today is just over 7.1 billion. In 1964, when Mary Sullivan was raped and murdered, it was 3.2 billion. You would have to leave the universe to find another person that it could possibly be other than Albert DeSalvo. You can't get around those numbers. It's conclusive. Albert DeSalvo brutally raped and murdered Mary Sullivan. There's no doubt in my mind.
1: Bill Dugan closed the case.
4: Will I take him up, Casey? Yeah, sure, why
7: not? Um, I've lived with Mary's memory every day, my whole life. And um, I didn't know, nor did my mother know, that other people were living with her memory as well. And it's amazing to me today to understand that people really did care about what happened to my aunt, a 19-year-old girl, heinously murdered in 1964. And it's taken 49 years for police to legitimately say they got their man. And I want to thank them for their uh, diligence and their persistence in this case. And uh, I want to thank you all for coming here. Thank you.
1: But closure came for just one family.
4: I want to make clear that these developments bear only on Mary Sullivan's murder. They don't apply to the other homicides popularly attributed to the Boston Strangler. At this point in time, 50 years from
1: Mary Sullivan's murder was solved because of persistence on two fronts, from the family, through Casey Sherman and his team, and from the Boston Crime Lab Unit and its director, Donald Hayes. Hayes had to be cautious. With each successive test, a little bit of the DNA evidence was destroyed. So Hayes and his scientists had waited for the technology to make a new leap forward. But if you want that persistence and patience to pay off, you have to know where the evidence is. Do you here have any evidence from any of the Boston Strangling cases?
3: Outside of Bessette, which we've tested and tested and it's got nothing to help us on it.
1: And Can you tell me what it is?
3: I don't know as I'm allowed to say that, but it's it's a piece of physical evidence and it does not contain anything probative.
1: Meaning it doesn't contain DNA that can be tested?
3: Um, that's my understanding at this point, yeah.
1: One refrain in the Boston Strangler case was that the killer, or killers, had not left any clues.
6: We were desperate for clues.
8: He struck within the light of day. There were no clues. Leaving not one clue astray. No physical evidence. What we had in the way of evidence was not sufficient to warrant an indictment or a grand jury investigation.
1: But if Mary Sullivan's case is any indicator, there were clues, tiny double helixes scattered across the crime scene evidence, in the stockings, the bed sheets, the clothing, in the semen found next to Sophie Clark's body, and conceivably in the attacker's skin and blood found under Nina Nichols' fingernails. All that evidence was gathered by local police, then by the attorney general's task force, and then, all those items went missing. In order to try to solve these other 12 unsolved Boston Strangler homicides, if we were, we, you, somebody, able to find the evidence that the Attorney General's office says that they just don't have, today, with, with more advanced DNA technology, some of that evidence could
3: possibly be tested. I would imagine most of that evidence could be tested. I would imagine... That'll be a new ball game.
1: As of February 2017, no one is actively looking for that missing evidence. Bill Dugan says his cold case squad will continue to take every opportunity to solve these crimes, if new evidence is discovered, or perhaps if a test appears that can harvest useful information from the beset evidence. Until that time, Dugan maintains, Albert DeSalvo is the most likely suspect in the unsolved stranglings. But Dugan also reminds us that the Boston stranglings were not DeSalvo's only crimes.
3: Let's not forget, these women that he murdered as part of the overall Boston strangler, the sheer number of them pale in comparison to the women he raped and didn't kill The women he molested as the measuring man. And that's Albert DeSalvo. He was a predator.
1: After the break, Adele Roof, a woman who survived an encounter with Albert DeSalvo, returns to Boston for the first time in half a century.
5: I'm positive that that was the window to our living room. Yeah. Because I had the front apartment and could look out the window and see him sitting out here. Mm -hmm.
1: Now back to Stranglers.
5: So in the 1950s, Saratoga Springs was a small little community in upstate New York where People knew each other. In fact, I couldn't wait to get away from it because it was as if everybody knew when I sneezed and they'd tell my mother. But that is also what made it safe because I could walk home and I knew somebody in about every three houses. And there was just a really strong feeling of security and maybe a certain type of innocence.
1: This is Adele Roof. In 1959... Adele left her hometown in upstate New York to start her freshman year at Boston University. It was quite a change for her.
5: I lived a pretty sheltered life. I didn't have a steady boyfriend in high school, and so I really wasn't experienced in a lot of different ways. And I was going to a college that was bigger than my hometown. Saratoga had 12,000 people. BU had something like 30,000. Oh my God. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So there was just a feeling of, I don't know if it would be numbness or overwhelm or just, oh, just this is hitting me, this is hitting me, this is hitting me, and just trying to just take it all in and um, have the ability to survive.
1: We met Adele in Episode 4. She's the woman who had several encounters with Albert DeSalvo. After she deflected his Measuring Man act once, DeSalvo returned to her apartment at 515 Park Drive and knocked on the door. She opened it and found him masturbating on her doorstep. Later, when Adele spotted DeSalvo on a train, she followed him and then called the police with his location. But the police didn't follow up. Adele only lived at 515 Park for a summer. But just four months after she moved out, Patricia Bissett was found strangled in the very same apartment.
5: And look at how beautiful some of these old buildings I are. Oh, um, yeah. Which I never appreciated many years ago.
1: I asked Adele if she would visit with me in Boston. She said she hadn't been to the city since she was 21. So seriously, this is your first time back since?
5: Since 1963. And you kind
1: of said you didn't want to come back.
5: No. I would say that my four years in Boston were probably the uh, most unhappy of my life. Really? Yeah, BU just wasn't a good fit for me. My first room was in the basement of the dormitory. I learned what a peeping Tom was because they were at our window. I learned what obscene callers were because they were calling the phone in the hallway. I learned what it was to be sexually assaulted because guys from Boston College um, assaulted me and a friend coming back from a movie on a a big street in Boston. What happened is is they drove up alongside of us and somehow forced me into the car. She was outside oh struggling God. with one of them. They had their license Jesus. plate covered up, and um, somehow she was able to get it off, but they threw me into the car, and one of them had exposed himself and was, you know, wanting me to perform, you know, whatever, and uh, and I put up a ferocious struggle, and then he just threw me out on the street as the cart was moving, and I was quite bruised, nothing broken. When was this? This is way before, you know, I met Albert DeSalvo, and uh, the police found the guys from Boston College. There were four of them. On the day of the court, their lawyers offered each of us $5,000 not to press charges. Wow. Um, I was just indignant that, I, that he thought I could be bought off, and the judge made this, saw this case about, you know, ruining their lives. They've learned from the experience. So I didn't press charges, and I didn't take the money. Apparently, we're very close. My eyes are tearing up a little bit, actually. Um,
1: We slowed down and caught a glimpse of 515 Park Drive. Adele, this is
5: it. Yeah, this is so, wow.
1: We parked around the corner and walked back towards the apartment building. Adele pointed out a storefront.
5: This is where the drugstore was. Oh, really? Right here at the corner of my block. So you were coming out of the store and you had a bag of items? A bag of, I'm just moving in maybe Kleenex, toilet paper, whatever, things like that. And that's, I think, where I first ran into him. Fifty years ago and fifty pounds ago, (laughs) he said, I'm a... Scout for a talent, you know, a photography agency. And I just think you'd look great in the gowns that we have. 515
1: Park Drive is a red brick building, four stories tall, built in 1908. It's in good condition. There's a stone crest above the door that says, The Royal.
5: I remember the mail slots being to the right on the wall there, to the right of...
1: The front door door to the building was unlocked so we crowded inside the vestibule and looked through the second door, which was locked. You feel 100% sure that that was your apartment door?
5: I'm positive that that was the window to our living room. Yeah. Because I had the front apartment and could look out the window and see him sitting out here. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that that's the door. Yeah. And it wasn't a BU dormitory the way it is now. It was just an apartment building.
1: Is it just, does it take you back? Or do
5: you feel like, is it spooky being here? Is it like... I mean, all I'm seeing is Patricia Bezette being covered up and carried out on a stretcher. That's that's the the image that's coming to my mind. And just this feeling of, uh, wow, you know. I was I was really close to having that happen to me. Mm-hmm. Really close. And... Uh, I was lucky enough that he knocked on my door. What if he had just come in the way he did supposedly with her?
4: Hi, Hi. Hi. We were Do you know hoping to see Lins somebody in this apartment right here. No, I don't know. Don't know? Okay,
5: thank you very much. Okay.
1: The students allowed us to enter. We walked down the short hallway, and suddenly, there we were. At the door, to Adele's old apartment.
5: That does look I mean, it like look, an old door. It looks door. like a really
1: old door. I don't know if it's from 1963, but it looks
5: pretty old. I was just wondering if it was solid wood. Uh.
1: And this is where he was standing outside masturbating. Yes. Right? Yeah. So you opened the door, it had the chain on it, and you could see him through the, the slit between the door, door frame
5: and the door? Yes. This wasn't, there was nothing here. There was no little people. People. Yeah, I keep wondering what this was. This looks like something different. I mean, I just recall one lock. um, Oh, my gosh, it's open.
1: (laughs) At this point, we looked at each other in shock. Adele's old apartment Patricia Bissett's old apartment was unlocked.
5: That's a little weird. Hello? Hello, is anybody there? Hello? Hmm. This is quite astounding, isn't That's it? It's
1: astounding. Astounding. So, so it looks like two young women live here. They've got their names on the door on these little cardboard fish, which are kind of cute, and I bet they have absolutely no idea what I feel like leaving them a
5: little note. You do? Yeah, I do, just telling them. What would you say? Girls, you should really like, keep your door locked. <laughs> uh. I handed Adele a pen, and she wrote a note. I lived in this apartment during the summer of 1962. My name is Adele Roof. I'm in town briefly until tomorrow. I'd like to speak with you about the history of this apartment, and I'd like to take a look at it. Please give me a call, Adele Roof, and then my phone number. Adele posted the note to the outside of
1: the door. Before we left, I asked Adele what her younger self would think of the life she'd gotten to lead.
5: I think that the young person would just be so grateful to have had just an extremely ordinary life but so much gratitude for that opportunity, the simple things, getting married, fighting with a husband, (laughs) having a child, doing just simple, ordinary things that everybody does over the years, nothing spectacular, but having had all that precious time. The gift of time is basically what comes to mind, not that I did anything special, but that I had this opportunity that these other people did not have, these other women, the younger ones, but even the older ones who lost their life, they could have had 20 or 30 more years too, even or even five days, it doesn't matter, life was stolen from them.
1: Dell told me that for years, she didn't want to think about the Boston Strangler case. But
5: recently, she picked up a copy of Gerald Frank's book. I read the chapter on Patricia Bizet. Gerald Frank had transcripts of DeSalvo talking, where he told Bottomley that um, I was very familiar with that apartment. I had been in it several times before to me that was a little bit of a confirmation that he, he, knew,
2: that he, he knew that apartment he knew and that he had been there
5: and he, he had killed her so when i read that i thought wow people who think that it's only proven that he killed mary yeah, sullivan right, right. well to me this is somewhat confirming about patricia Bizet as well These sequences
1: of clues are all we have to go on. They've led me to a few conclusions. The DNA evidence in the Mary Sullivan case proved DeSalvo was a murderer. If I connect Adele's two encounters with DeSalvo at 515 Park Drive with DeSalvo's own statements to police, I'm led to think, yes, DeSalvo killed Patricia Bissett. There's a similar connection in the case of Sophie Clark, The same day she was murdered, a woman living in Clark's building encountered a man posing as a repairman. Then he changed his story and said he was a modeling scout. The woman got him to leave by saying her husband was in the other room. Sophie Clark's body was found later that day. Mary Sullivan, Patricia Bissett, Sophie Clark. I believe Albert DeSalvo killed these three women. But beyond these murders, it's really hard for me, for anyone, to say who committed the other stranglings. It seems unlikely DeSalvo committed all of them. Remember the mistakes he made in his confessions, especially when he talked about the first five, the older women. DeSalvo said he'd raped each of them and ejaculated. The autopsies showed only abuse with objects. But even with all the mistakes and inaccuracies, DeSalvo's confessions nearly closed the case. Do you think our justice system places too much emphasis on confessions?
6: Absolutely. And confessions make for lazy cops. You know, what happens is, is we'll go in there, we get a confession, and then we pretty much stop investigating.
1: This is Jim Trainum. He reviews criminal cases to find out where investigators might have gone wrong.
6: In the Strangler case, it looked like the task force was satisfied, the media was satisfied, and so they were able to kind of step back and take a breather and yet admit, at least to themselves, that we're not totally convinced that this guy did it. But, you know, other cases are are, you know, now knocking on the door, other work has to be done. And once you work a case and, and have no other leads to follow, then it kind of goes on the back burner.
1: Other suspects we've looked at in this series remain compelling. Charles Terry, for example. Terry's murder of Zenobia Clegg in New York is like an echo of the first five stranglings. Clegg was older. She was strangled with a piece of her own clothing. Her autopsy showed no signs of sexual intercourse. And Clegg had been abused with an object. Tom Cavanaugh, one of the most respected detectives of the time, went to his grave convinced that Terry was the Boston Strangler. I also think about Beverly Samans. There was her rumored relationship with the psychotic Harvard student. And DeSalvo got so much wrong in his confession. He was wrong about the weapon that was used to stab her. He was wrong about how many times she'd been stabbed. And he was wrong about where the weapon had been left. Do you think that police are sometimes just eager to accept the simple narrative oh it's that one guy so they can like close the books and be done with it
6: well i think serial killers i think that we're terrified of serial killers and yet they're also comforting in that it's only one person out there doing all this stuff it's not multiple people uh doing these things um and so We would rather have this one person responsible for all of this, one monster, than have to admit that there's multiple ones that are out there. Multiple
1: monsters. We've certainly learned that they exist in New York, in Michigan, in Boston. But those are just the monsters who make headlines, who sell books, and who distract attention from a more widespread problem.
0: Not every perpetrator that we deal with is a psychopath or a sociopath. Not every perpetrator that we deal with becomes a serial killer. But the reality is that in the years in which the Boston Strangler was uh, killing women, I guarantee you that there were hundreds if not thousands of women strangled in Boston during that same period of time.
1: This is Casey Gwynn. While we were working on this series, we came across an extraordinary program he co-founded, It's called the Training Institute on Strangulation Prevention.
0: The purpose of our advocacy in this is to cause people to realize that putting your hand around somebody's neck is not the same as slapping them in the face or even punching them in the chest. The man who punches or slaps a woman is an idiot and an asshole. The man who strangles a woman is a killer.
2: If you are strangled even one time, the research now shows that you're 750% more likely to be killed.
1: Gail Strack is co-founder of the institute. The statistic she's quoting was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2008. Strack says many emergency responders are not even aware of the damage strangling can cause, like the fact that women who survive strangulation are prone to strokes even years after the attack. Everybody seems to look at the black eye or the bruise on the arm or the swollen lip. But strangulation, most of the injuries are going to be
8: internal.
1: Strack and Gwyn train emergency personnel to recognize the subtle outward marks of strangulation, like tiny blood spots in a woman's eye. And they run a camp for boys who've suffered violence at home. They want to redirect these kids before they become threats themselves.
0: If you want to see the next generation of stranglers in America, all you have to look at is the rage-filled children growing up in homes with violence and abuse. We raise our criminals at home in America, and the vast majority of men who grew up to strangle, beat, or rape women grew up in homes where there was violence and abuse, and there was no aggressive intervention to cause their path to change.
1: Gwynn says men often strangle women to silence them. And because strangulation often leaves few or no physical marks, women frequently do keep quiet. It's hard to prove what you can't see. Professor and author Jane Caputi says nothing is more important than telling those stories
8: to make the invisible undeniable. What justice would be on the individual level is, you know, making sure that man never harms anybody else again, to begin with, making sure that the woman is treated with absolute respect, care, and given all the support she needs to to heal from that. But on like a larger cultural issue, you know, when you think of the magnitude of rape and sexual assault, the great poet and playwright Ntozake Shangi wrote a piece once that, you know, we really needed to have memorials to the women, the women who were killed. You know, these women are victims of the war, you know, men's war against women. We need to reverse that war and really acknowledge what's going on and have the kind of memorials and truth and reconciliation that would mean we were seriously as a culture trying to end this kind of epidemic of sexual violence.
1: After the break. How the stories we tell shape the world around us. Do you think that storytelling in any way can lead to
8: justice? Yes. Storytelling does lead to justice. That's why all the truth and reconciliation committees, I mean, if you have to really hear another person, especially somebody you victimized, if that person has to can tell her story and be heard in a respectful, healing, honoring way. Sure, that really works. And if those stories then get circulated as like our sacred stories, the stories that we rely upon for what's real, what's true, what's just, what's valued, absolutely. And
1: a final memorial. Now, back to Stranglers. Once upon a time in ancient Greece, there was a maiden named Medusa. Her long, wild locks were so beautiful that men were irresistibly drawn to her. The god Poseidon was transfixed by Medusa's beauty as well. one day, while Medusa was in the temple of Athena, Poseidon raped her. Athena saw this as a defilement of her temple, but it was Medusa who was punished. Athena turned her beautiful locks into vicious snakes. For the rest of her life, Medusa was so hideous that any man who approached her would be turned to stone.
8: But that's just one version of the story. In the original story of Medusa, she was not a rape victim. That's a much later patriarchal version. The story of Medusa is a story of resistance to rape. Originally, and this goes back centuries and centuries before the Common Era, Medusa was the goddess of the earth and the underworld. Her hair was of snakes. She originally looked like that. She also had wings. She was a creature of the air. She was the most powerful goddess. And um, yes, if a man approached her, he would turn to stone. And the idea of that is if you violate her limits, if you transgress against the sacred, there is, you know, consequences, right?
1: Jane Caputi told me a story about a woman she knows, Emily Culpepper. Culpepper is a scholar who's studied powerful female symbols, and Medusa in particular,
8: and one night she's working on her dissertation, and uh, she's distracted as we are, when we're totally caught up in our work. and there's a knock on the door. And she opens it, thinking it's a neighbor. And it's not the neighbor. It's a man who pushes his way in and she realizes, big mistake, this guy is going to intending on rape me. She had taken some self-defense. But even more than that, she said, she got so angry, she felt her hair rising. She felt her face twist into a fighting grimace, and she physically threw him out. And she said he looked at her as if she were doing something wrong. And then she goes into her bathroom and looks in the mirror and said, I wanted to see this face that had surfaced in me and saved me. So she said, I again felt my hair rise, my face go into this fighting grimace. And she said, I looked in the mirror and I knew Gorgon, Gorgon, Medusa. That mythic image had come to me in my hour of extremity and gave me the power to throw him out.
1: Adele Roof also told me a story I
5: loved. It involves her daughter. When I first started leaving my daughter alone to run to the grocery store... She was perhaps 8 or 10 years old. Before I left her, I role-played with her on a number of occasions where I would lock her in the house, and then I would come around and knock on the back door and say, "'Please, little girl, please let me in. I'm hurt. I'm bleeding. I've got to call the hospital right away or I'm going to die out here.'" And then she'd sort of laugh and go, no, I'm not going to let you in. And then I'd go around the block again, and I'd come back, and I'd say, um, I've known your mother for many, many years. I just want to drop off this box of chocolates for your family because I'm so happy you're here in the neighborhood. And then she'd kind of giggle on the other side and say, no. And I did that. Uh, A number of times making up stories like that until I was satisfied that she wasn't going to open the door under any circumstances.
1: What happened to you stayed with you?
5: Very definitely, very definitely, yeah.
1: As Adele watched her daughter grow up, she saw that clever young girl develop into a strong, athletic young woman. Adele wrote an essay, published in a local magazine, about that transformation. The essay is called Sweat. We asked Adele to read an excerpt.
5: My daughter opens the car door and drops down into the seat beside me. A bottle of water raised to her lips. Loose wisps of hair escape from her French braid and curl in tendrils around her flushed face. She and her teammates have spent two hours running up and down a field. Her smudged t-shirt sticks to her body. She pulls up its bottom edge to wipe her face. My daughter sweats more during one soccer game than I sweated in four years of high school. Girls hated to sweat in the late 50s and early 60s because we wanted to be housewives when we grew up. Night after night, we sacrificed sleep to wire rollers with sharp little bristles inside, coercing our hair into the latest styles, and sweat could ruin that hairdo in minutes. Our mothers coached us to take up knitting, not karate, baking, not baseball. They whispered last-minute reminders as we left with our dates on a Saturday night. Don't let them know you're smart. Act sweetly at all times, ask questions to draw him out. In a few years, we hoped our lives would feature a wonderful provider and three darling kids, a white picket fence and a bungalow with cute blue shutters where our family would live happily ever after. We didn't know that as soon as we were out the door and on our way to school, our mothers sometimes cried inside their blue-shuttered bungalows. We were raised on a fantasy, eventually betrayed by it, but at the time we could not have imagined any other world. To venture beyond our mother's flat certainties was to risk falling off the earth. Most of us didn't have that kind of courage. Is this Pine Street? I don't know? No, this is Main Street. This is Main Street,
1: right. Okay, thank you. The day after Adele and I visited her old apartment in Boston, we took a drive. About 90 minutes southeast to Cape Cod, near Barnstable. This is it, because right. I looked... Yes, at your yep. This is the sign that I saw online.
5: Arrived at St.
1: Francis Xavier's Cemetery... This is it. Yes. Mary Sullivan is buried in a family plot. The gravestone is simple, carved with a grapevine, two crosses, and a sacred heart. So there are four names. Her parents, John T. Sullivan, 1903 to 1975. He died after her. Nineteen eleven, Florence L. Sullivan to nineteen ninety-four, her mother died after her too.
5: Thirty years after her.
1: And she had a brother in nineteen forty seven, he was younger, David V. Sullivan. She's the third name there in the in the center. Mary A. Sullivan. Nineteen forty four to nineteen sixty-four.
5: Nineteen years.
1: Almost 20. Years. Almost
5: 20, but
1: very short. And when you were in Boston
5: that summer, 1962, how old were you? 20. Same age? 20 that summer, yeah, basically the same age. And here I am.
1: Adele and I stood there a while, talking about Mary and about the other women.
5: Who was the one, uh, Sophie Clark, who was in the middle of writing a letter to her boyfriend? You know, I haven't heard from you in a while, and I'm making uh, a a liver and onion dinner tonight. (laughs) Just so immersed in life. I'm cooking liver and onions. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last word on the letter was I, right? I and So standing I'm here, do you really f- grateful to be here? You are. Well, I'm doing something that I probably haven't done before, just really just feeling such intense gratitude. I think the way I've related to this experience throughout the years has mostly been through fear and not so much through gratitude. Mm-hmm. Just really grateful.
1: Where do you think we should put our flowers? I don't know. Do you want to put them? on the tombstone itself or do you want to put them on the ground?
5: I have another idea. Okay. Why don't we take them out and um, put one in but say the name as we do it. Okay. Okay. So, I will put this one in in honor of the memory of Anna Slessers.
1: And this one is for uh, Nina Nichols.
5: Jane Sullivan. Helen Blake. This one is in honor of Sophie Clark
1: Beverly Siemens.
5: And this one is in honor of the woman who moved into my apartment Patricia Bizet
1: Evelyn Corbin
5: Joanne Graff
1: And this one is in honor of Mary Brown
5: Mary Mullen And even though she was 85 years old, she still might have lived another 10 years or even one more day. She had her life taken away from her.
1: And this is in honor of Ida Erga. And all 12 of these are here with Mary Sullivan. To say anything or?
5: yeah, I'm uh, just thinking may they rest in peace.
1: Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Masihhi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbets, and Taylor DeWicke. Special thanks to Ben Avishai. Thanks also to Gail Strack and Casey Gwynn. For more information on their work to prevent domestic violence in all its forms, go to AllianceForHope.com. And thanks to the Harry Ransom Center archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. All of our amazing original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. You can find more of Allison's music at AllisonLaytonBrown.com. The Leighton is spelled with an E. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John Natale of Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Natale and his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, Visit strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. This is Portland Helmick. On behalf of everyone who worked on this show, we want to thank you so much for listening. This is a difficult story to tell for a lot of different reasons, so we really appreciate having such an involved and intelligent audience. Your comments, your praise, and your thoughtful criticism, all of it mattered deeply to us, and it really did help make our show better. If you enjoyed Stranglers, please share it with your friends. And of course, it's never too late for you to rate and review the show. Later this year, we'll use this podcast feed to bring you a new true crime series. We can't talk about it yet, but believe me, it's going to be every bit as interesting as Stranglers. So don't go anywhere.